Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individuals and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our deeply technical series. Hello and welcome. This is Chris Castle, developer advocate at Heroku. Uh, welcome to another episode of Codish. With me today is Tim Speck. Uh, he's the co-founder and CTO of Dubsmash and a longtime Heroku customer. Uh, I'm sure I butchered his his last name, so I'll let him introduce himself and uh, tell you a little bit about him. Um, hey, my name is Tim Specht. Um, I'm for the co-founder and CTO of Dubsmash. Um, I'm originally actually from uh, Berlin in Germany. That's also where the, the weird uh, second name uh, and last name is coming from. And yeah, I've been actually starting my career as a mobile engineer um, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, first, when the first iOS and Android SDKs came out. And uh, yeah, these days, I'm running Dubsmash's um, engineering team. We're building a lot of cool features, mostly on mobile and um, on web, um, to to yeah build a build a delightful user experience for our users. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah, so um, Dubsmash when Dubsmash came out, was it um, in uh, 2015? Okay, yeah, it came out and it was kind of like this huge explosion on the scene, right? And lots of uh, got lots of um, excitement from users and also I'm sure like. VC funders or investors and other things like that. Um, I do remember that was kind of like one of the first big audio and video related like mobile apps. Is that is that correct? Or um, maybe I, I just I, wasn't down with the cool stuff that's that early? <laughs> no, I, I would definitely say say you're right with that. Um, Dustmatch actually kind of like started very classically as kind of like the follow up on um, a previous kind of like video related um, editing app that, that Jonas um, and my co-founder and I kind of like worked on. And uh, yeah, that did work out well. And then, then kind of like Dub Smash was the um, distillation of all the things that did work well, you know, and all the simplicity kind of like in it. And uh, yeah, we, we really had um, a, a lot of kind of like initial track traction. Uh, we still have, still going very strong. We're based um, out of New York um, these days, not out of Germany anymore. Um, but but yeah, definitely one of the, the first big video kind of like uh, products um, next to, to, to Vine, for example, and Video Star. Oh yeah, um, Vine. That were out there yeah Vine, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah that's cool so that's one of the things i think you know that that helped make dub smash so so exciting and so popular um in the in the topic of our of our conversation today was this kind of this focus on user experience right and i think one thing you like to, to talk about specifically is like delighting the user giving them like something that that is is useful or fun um, but also kind of delighting them with the the interaction their experience with with the application um, is that is that is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think these days, actually, um, especially in mobile, the opportunities um, for, for us as engineers and as engineering teams and companies at the end of the day um, are really pretty uh, magnificent, actually. If you compare that to um, the first um, iPhone, for example, um, that came out back then, you you couldn't literally write kind of like own apps for it. It didn't support like multitasking. It didn't support really any gestures in the way we know it these days. And we've really come kind of like a, a long way and uh, what tech enables us these days is not only kind of like to to build very kind of like sophisticated and very 
broadly scaling systems of, of different forms, but it also enables us to, to kind of utilize that technology um, advancement to actually build great user experiences um, in the end, you know. And I think these days the tools, they are so commoditized um, for, for engineers that it's really easier and easier um, to build apps. But with that, of course, also comes um, a certain bar of, of quality um, that kind of like users expect. And if you, if you just look at the App Store over the last couple of years, um, it really has kind of like evolved um, a lot, you know, um, in terms of not only the business models that apps uh, use um, to, to kind of like monetize on, but also in the way they're written and the way um, they're used by our users at the end of the day. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I, uh, my background as a developer was, was not kind of from the front end of development. I was always drawn more to like, how does the computer work? Um, or how do I build a system that mm. you know allows these computers to work together or these processes to work together? Uh, but your your background, it sounds like you, you started as a, as a mobile developer. And it seems like as a mobile developer, like mobile app developer, you have to be like very aware and keep in your mind and kind of have empathy for the end user from the beginning, um, right? Whereas someone who is... Uh, for example, like, you know, in a lot of universities, you learn C or C++ as your as your first language. Uh, maybe you don't write a kernel driver as your first thing, but, you know, you're very you're very low level and and more focused on how does the computer work? How do CPU registers work? How does memory work? Memory allocation work um, instead of what does the user want from this and how do they want to interact and it's like how does this irrational being interact with this like very rational logical thing that is a computer um, yeah ver so very well uh, said i think actually yeah that's i just i think that's that's like su super interesting you know you coming from that that direction i was just curious to hear more about like your views on yeah user experience and how how that's important, I guess, or, or how that, how that has kind of manifested itself in your, your career as a software developer. Yeah, sure. I, I think actually at the end of the day for me, um, both sides, so, so both kind of like the practical knowledge and the, the user experience side, as well as kind of like the side of like understanding the internals and how certain things work, I think are really important these days. I think engineers and the position of like an engineer and the job description kind of like that comes with it has changed quite a bit in the last couple of years and probably mostly in the last decade or two it has changed from something where historically um, you were very kind of like siloed in in your kind of like department or in your cubicle maybe literally and and uh, your main responsibility was kind of like to to write a certain amount of code a certain way you know so so that was very straightforward very heads down most of the time and these days um, usually you are required to have a way more kind of like diverse skill set and not only being able to to write an app or an API or like a custom search um, index or something like that, but also being able to kind of understand why you're doing that and why that is important to to your users, you know. And I think that is something that uh, mobile development, I think especially actually the first versions of Objective-C and the iOS SDKs um, back then actually have taught me because on one side, of course, you're working on something UI related. So you're most spending most of your time kind of like dog fooding your your own work you know because you use the, the same app you run it on your phone a lot 
you see if that button works or, or how that transition is or, or if that makes sense on a, on a UX point of view. And on the other side, um, you also have to deal with a lot of kind of like under the hood topics like memory management, for mm, example, right. which is something I'm personally, of course, very happy to not have to do anymore these <laughs> days because we have uh, on, on, on iOS, for example, we have automatic retain counting these days. But um, for the first, I think, four or five years of my of my mobile engineering i did retain counting myself you know and um it uh, led to a lot of bugs um it led to a lot of memory leaks because oftentimes it was forgotten but it also has taught me a lot about how the processor works kind of like under the hood you know and how the compiler works under the hood so i think for for engineers these days it's really important to kind of like find a good balance um of of both um i think you should still specialize in either though i don't think it's really feasible to be either really great at building a great ux or being really great at understanding how our compiler works and what preprocessor macros are but i think at least a baseline knowledge is at least something everyone should have to really make sure that if you get to that point where you need to debug that super esoteric issue that only happens on one out of a thousand devices and you really can't reproduce it locally sometimes that that deep knowledge of how system works really can can help you out in that what about though as a you know you've you have kind of filled roles from individual contributor individual developer um uh, earlier in your career and now you're the the CTO um a which at a startup can mean many things right it can mean like i <laughs> yes. you write code but you also um kind of design the architecture or the structure of a system um and and uh, also um manage other engineers. Um, mm-hmm. How does that? It seems like as the as a CTO though, you you probably need to um, at some point kind of go be okay going broad, and you know not getting down on yourself or requiring yourself to know every little new thing about iOS development. Um, and then on the other side, maybe like not knowing every little thing about like how to make Postgres queries efficient or something like that. Um, is that is that accurate? Or do you still are you still able to do both? Kind of go broad and deep. Um, I, I think it's it's mostly a kind of like thing um, of prioritization for me. I think mm-hmm. what one one thing that I really had to learn over the years is is how to kind of like let go every once in a while, you know, and and have problems uh, be mm. dealt with in in ways that might not necessarily be the ones you would choose yourself, you know. Um, but I think mm-hmm. that's one thing I personally really enjoy about engineering. There's never there's always a better and a worse, but there's very rarely only one option that that actually truly works and that is the only pass forward, you know. And that is something that I I usually end up deciding quite quite on the fly when it's enough for me to be kind of like like on a high level familiar with something and and when it's necessary to actually go deep, you know, and understand why a certain piece of code works a certain way or why, as you mentioned, Postgres, for example, um, um, what what implications a high write traffic workload on your index strategy has, you know, and and yeah. how that kind of like a tab affects the the physical tables on disk at the end of the day, and the the kind of like operations operating system has to do, you know, and I think that is something that um, has changed for me personally um, a lot um, in the last couple of years. I, I used to to really be the person that uh, is is always going as deep kind of like as possible, and and if if necessary spend 
spend days on on figuring out certain solutions to a problem. But these days, I'm I'm much more um, a of course working with my team on that and, and and making sure that I'm not necessarily the one that that actually gets to to answer or solve it in the end, but also to at some point cut your losses. You know, um, is a certain obstacle kind of like preventing um, a feature from progressing or from being completed or a certain kind of like bottleneck and scalability um, to prevent the feature from rolling out in the first place, then there's always two options, right? Either you can go in and and fix it, um, whatever it might be, um, or you can decide, hey, okay, approach A works for some reason not as well as I would have thought. So let's, instead of trying to make approach A better, let's just cut our losses and figure out what approach B could be, you know? And I think that is something that I, that I really picked up over the years that, that, that yeah ability and that that insight to be honest as well um to to know when it's time to move on and when it's worth it uh going deep that is i think really one of these things in engineering that make it really um exciting because there is always so many new kind of like technologies so many new paradigms or architectures mm-hmm. or even frameworks kind of like release on a day-by-day basis you know that on one side of course makes it impossible really to truly keep up with everything and truly be done knowing or learning things at some point but on the other side it also kind of like implies that while one year a certain problem might have been too hard um, for you to solve based on the the kind of like resources or the knowledge that you have the next year it might actually be a, a problem that is totally within reach of you and or kind of like your team you know and i think a, a great example of that in the last couple of years has been um tenderflow um the machine learning kind of like mm-hmm. framework let's call it um from from google that has really commoditized the way we can um we we can built machine learning models two or three years ago that would have been impossible for most of us um, due to to resource constraints teams being too small or that knowledge still being just very expert level and by that being very expensive and these days um, it's literally possible within five minutes to build an image classifier that uh, tells you if if an image is dark or hot dark you know and um, (laughs) that is something that I I, I know it's it's a funny comparison um, but the the HBO guys they they actually built that little sample app in um, C++ and OpenCV and also TensorFlow, I think, you know, and um, they they incorporated that into the show and everyone had a good laugh about it. I, I personally like liked uh, that episode a lot, but um, it also tells you a lot about what's kind of like possible these days with technology, you know, and, right. and what we can do as, as kind of like engineers to take that knowledge and take that possibility and unlock some form of user value um, for our very specific users users depending on the product we're working on yeah yeah that's cool i wonder if you know how there's like the there's the kind of this like uh the canonical app at least for front-end frameworks there's like the to-do app that um is a web app that if you build a new front-end framework right so when like react came out or Vue.js came out or angular people like try to show the code to build a simple to-do tracking app, um, list of to-dos. Uh, I wonder if <laughs> Hot Dog or not Hot Dog will become the new canonical app, uh, or maybe the canonical app for for machine learning that you that you build, and that that's how you compare different machine learning um, frameworks or <laughs> or. Uh, 
yeah, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I think at least for for kind of like machine learnings and, and Im, uh, image classification in uh, particular, I've actually seen that quite a bit already. But what I find it um, interesting, very personally, about the to do list um, example that is is probably the most well known kind of like Hello World app these days. You know. Right. Um, 10 or yeah, 15 years ago, I, I learned, um, was it Visual Basic, um, that programming language where you made the turtle like walk on the screen and draw stuff? Um, oh, I, yeah, I don't remember what language it was, but there's, I remember the cursor, right? And it's like a yeah, triangle, but exactly. it was called a turtle and it would draw wherever yeah. the path that it would take. And so you could learn exactly. for loops. And, yeah. Exactly. And and that yeah. was back then was kind of like the Hello World app. You know, that was kind of like the first, hey, here, look, I can program. And then over years, it with uh, React and, and Backbone.js and all the likes, it, it kind yeah. of like turned into that to-do list app. And these days, even a simple to-do list is too simple for a Hello World app, you know, where right. people all of a sudden are like, oh, yeah, so... We used to be able to do to do lists as kind of like the MVP for for like new engineers that like go into a coding bootcamp or something like that. And these days, we're gonna raise the bar to be able within ten minutes to to be able to like distinguish pictures, you know, which is um, really crazy, like how that has accelerated yes. over the last couple of years. And uh, and and that um, is is actually interesting, I think, in in what it teaches people because on one side, of course, it teaches people way quicker to uh, utilize uh, the tooling that is available in whatever stack that might be and, and that they might be interested in and how to use the most common libraries, which I think is great because most of the things we build today, we don't actually have to build ourselves anymore. It's more about stitching them together and being mm-hmm. smart about kind of like which components, whether that be software or hardware or infrastructure be um, to use. But on the other side, it is also dangerous for people, I think, because it, it kind of abstracts away a lot of the under the hood things that are happening in terms of memory management in terms of of import kind of like structure like you should have seen me for example struggle um, a couple of years ago for the first time setting up um, a react app because there was like five million different um, options and, and bootstrap tools and, and tutorials out there on the internet and I, I picked a bunch but then they didn't work out really and I, I needed to learn first on the how the uh, how webpack for example actually actually works, you know, and how it imports modules in order to to overcome that. And and that was really part of any of that, you know, and that was a very kind of like frustrating experience for me personally, which I'm I'm very happy to see that that more more recent tutorials on, on Kubernetes or TensorFlow or, or any of the likes, they they do a little bit better, you know, and finding the the balance between, hey, I want to display on how easy I am to use and to integrate as kind of like a sales mm-hmm argument and yeah. on the other side also making sure that the engineers that end up using those frameworks and libraries truly understand the implications and the under the hood workings and the architecture of it um, as a whole yeah yeah it seems like it's a common i think it's a common theme in in this like very very fast evolving world of software development in general it's this it's kind of the idea of abstractions right you want to uh, I, I, as like a software developer, want to be able to use like higher and higher level abstractions so that I can kind of produce more faster. Yeah. Um, like you said, stitch things together, produce more faster. But then, yeah, there's there's pitfalls that 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 you can not understand or not know about when you say like when I say stitch something together with these very high level abstractions, and then push that thing to production or release it to customers or users in some way and it breaks um 
what what do I do? How do I do I know how to debug it? Like, do I know how to read the stack trace that comes out of that? Does it even produce a stack trace that I can use? Yeah, um, it sounds yeah, right? sounds like a funny question. Something that that doesn't produce a stack trace these days anymore, but it actually right. exists, right? And I think that is that is probably one of the most interesting kind of like inflection points for for young tech startups, especially I think because in the beginning, of course, it's all about being as quick as possible and kind of like going as broad as possible and covering a lot of ground, you know, and kind of like validating your your product idea of whatever sorts. But as you kind of like grow, uh, not only within your team, of course, but also hopefully with users, you will get to that point where um, the kind of like full stack generalist approach that you used to take in the past probably doesn't scale and doesn't work as well uh, with your, your current usage anymore because you do have more and more issues to debug that are rather scarce and that are really kind of like hard to find and to track down. And at that point, you need to be able to either kind of advance from your very broad um, skill set into a T-shape in, in some shape or form, basically, or mm-hmm. you need to bring talent on board that has that deep, like fundamental knowledge and actually is able to diagnose memory issues, for example, right? That is something that we yeah. historically always have have found as the most troublesome to, to implement or to debug and to fix because there is usually no stack trace because there is no exception being thrown and on the Mm -hmm. other side it also is something that is very kind of like impactful for your users and for your infrastructure because either your machine just crashes or if you run on on something managed like on aws google um, then uh, your machines just get terminated uh, due to uh, over utilization of resources right so you have no trace of anything going wrong (laughs) except for your machine to all of a sudden like restoring you know and you dropping traffic uh, as as a result and at that point you need to be very deeply familiar with your stack and with the tooling and with the frameworks you're using and you need to understand how they work internally and to a degree where you need to understand how Python, for example, allocates memory and and how the, the global interpretal lock uh, works for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that I think takes year of, years of experience and most importantly, years of uh, failure um, to see, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and years of kind of like failure in, in production um, as well. One thing I think about that's like kind of always spinning in my mind is... The industry that we that we work in, there's a lot changing in it, and it's exploding. And it's it's on one hand, it's like technology is becoming kind of core to almost you know what people do at work every day. Um, it's becoming it's growing and and kind of has tentacles into everything that happens in the world today. Whether it's like social interactions with your friends or or business in general, um, it's it's like a, our industry has become this. I don't want to say foundation, but like, it's just like seeped into everything. Um, but along with that then comes, you know, people, um, uh, companies trying to create services, right. Trying to create the shovels and the picks to, to allow developers to build bigger and better things. So examples are like the, um, the service catalogs from AWS or GCP or Azure, the Kubernetes, uh, not just Kubernetes, the, that project, but then the ecosystem of kind of other open source projects that that have come up or exist all around it, and they're all at kind of different levels of maturity. And then you know, to like what what you work on, there's there's um, uh, new startups coming coming every day. Um, some are you know more consumer focused, uh, but some are also very creating services for developers. Um, right, this is Heroku back in two thousand eight, nine, ten. Um, 
how, how do you as a CTO deal with that chaos without going crazy <laughs> or, or, you know, feel that you are doing the right, doing what you can or doing the right job or do, doing the right thing for your, your business, um, for the, for the product that you're building, making the right decisions, but also knowing that a human can't keep track of all of these things that are available and know everything about all of these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. What is, how do, how do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. I, I think in, at the end of the day, um, you, you need to be really invested into kind of like the space, um, the stack, the, the ecosystem, um, that you're working in and, and kind of like follow it, um, quite a bit. Um, I, I personally follow, um, a, a bunch of kind of like publications, um, stack share is only something I can recommend. I, I read a lot on medium and I think mm. that is, is usually something I, I tend to do on on kind of like one-off kind of like occasions where i stumble over like a certain service being released or someone like posting on on a hacker news about having experiences with a certain aws service or or something like that Mm -hmm. and that's simply kind of like consume and and the way i i use those um those 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 pickles and and, and access that you that you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier um i I see that kind of like as my my mental tool shed you know and i know exactly what what kind of tools i have in there some are a little bit rust some are a little bit more shiny for sure you know some some are great for for like excavating some bedrock others are probably more for getting rid of a couple of flowers in the yard but um <laughs> it's it's important to know kind of like what you have at your disposal you know and that is not only um technology that is in the first place kind of like available to you by by either an open source framework or library or a, a hosted service on aws or, or gcp or azure or whatever other cloud you're in and um once you once you have that mental image and once you have that kind of like little tool shed of yours i think it's very important to a be excited about adding new tools to it because that's mm-hmm. the only way you will kind of like evolve and, and continue learning as an engineer but on the other side also being very realistic and very honest with yourself and to be frank also with your team on which tool is is actually ready to go into the shed and which tool is is more still like a, a blueprint and and not truly mm-hmm. ready for use you know and and that yeah. that's always that question on on how quickly do i want to adopt a, a certain new paradigm or a certain new um technology you know while while we here at depth smash usually try to be um very very quick and very decisive um, about things like that as well um we we do usually wait at least a couple kind of like months to to hear the first waves of uh complaints and uh and of, of stories basically about what worked out well and what didn't work out well and also to to have some time to to kind of like talk to other people um in the industry you know and once we've identified something as some uh, as a tool that we we want to want to add we usually commit um, fully um, to it, you know. Um, once that decision has been made, and we all feel comfortable with it. We usually go and and start integrating it either on a on a smaller scale basis, or if it's like a, a like Django upgrade, for example, from one to two mm-hmm. or something like that. We usually roll it out a little bit wider um, across the organization. Um, but what you should avoid at any cost is uh, jumping on on board of a ship um, that just kind of like left the, the harbor and that is very likely um, to sink right in front of it. You know, I think one of the <laughs> best stories, probably not, but one of the the worst <laughs> stories I think that I like to tell about that is uh, graph databases um, mm-hmm. that we we use 
used a, a couple of years ago. Um, back then, we had kind of like a Cassandra uh, storage layer, which is great. I'm personally a big fan of that kind of technology. And then we had something called um, Titan um, sitting um, on top of it, which was basically hmm. a GraphQL engine. Back then, it was open source. And then... Um, it, it kind of like was part of the Apache incubator, um, which kind of like tells you a lot about already in what state that project is uh, in, right? If it's still mm -hmm. in the incubator. And then um, the company that was kind of like maintaining um, Titan as a framework got bought by um, Datastax um, back then. So, so they kind of like enterprise, it made that a little bit more enterprisey kind of stopped supporting the, the open source fork of it. And that mm -hmm. project uh, kind of like, yeah, kind of like apped out a little bit, you know, and we, we had bet a lot of our kind of like product strategy, um, a lot of our kind of like in-app recommendations and, 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 and social connections on top of that. And that ended up costing us kind of, I think, two months of development time, you know, because uh, we, we started integrating it. We tried to get Cassandra to scale to a level where we would wanted to be uh, based on the usage of the graph database, which didn't work out. And then in the end, we had to implement a completely different solution, you know, and yeah. that that was something that I think we could have avoided if we would have waited for another, not even much, two months, I think, um, yeah. and, and would have been a little bit more honest um, to ourselves that uh, a project, um, for example, that, that still is in, in the incubating status of Apache is incubating for a reason, you know, so while, while it might be great technology that's Available and while it might be a very great skill and, and and tool to pick up in your in your spare time or kind of like in a development capacity, it's probably not ready for big scale millions of users kind of like production use in the end. Right, right. So we gotta we gotta wrap up now. But um, is there anything uh, that you want to share out with with people about like um, is Dubsmash hiring? Do you want people to check out something new you're working on or releasing? Uh, anything, anything new and exciting you personally or you professionally would like to to uh, kind of wrap up with. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, we're, we're definitely hiring in New York. We're looking for um, a lead iOS engineer and a senior Android engineer right now. Um, so we're, we're staffing our mobile teams uh, quite a bit uh, more. Other than that, I, I think if there's there's probably one. Um, one piece of advice I, I would want to give other engineers um, mm. today, um, it's uh, keep it simple. Um, I think um, building a simple solutions and, and building simple architectures and choosing the simple way to solve problems first, um, at least, um, is always something that has done me personally very well um, in my career and in the the code that I've written um, at the end of the day. And I think if you if you always opt for the most simple, most elegant um, solution that's probably a, a good default uh, to base your decisions on. Yeah, that's good. I think good good wisdom some, from someone who's, who's experienced lots of, uh, yeah, ups and, ups and downs, failures and successes. Uh, I think yes, I, fair, I agree. Yes, fair share of both. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree too. The more, I think the older I get, the more I, I feel that, what you just said. That, that keeping it simple is is so important. Um, cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any Heroku's podcast, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.